Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People this week, a diplomatic ding-dong sends shockwaves through the special relationship. Do you know of any other occasion on which a, the head of state of a friendly government has refused to cooperate with any of Her Majesty's envoys. No. Labour's anti-Semitism problem reaches Jeremy Corbyn's office. This is a crisis of leadership. We're asking Jeremy Corbyn to show leadership and as a first step, set up a completely independent process. And we speak to the favourite to be the next Lib Dem leader. It's been a very positive contest. It's a contest between friends. We, we actually like each other, uh, unlike in the Conservative uh, race uh, for their leader. Hello and welcome to Commons People. Joining me this week is Paul War. Hi, Arj. Hey, Paul. And we've also got Liberal Democrat former minister and current favourite to take over as leader, Joe Swinson. Hello. Hey, Joe. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Good. Um, right. Paul has a forfeit hanging over his head for repeatedly referring to Boris Johnson as Boris on the podcast. But since we're in Joe's office <coughs> in Parliament and JJ, our producer, who has come up with the forfeit, isn't here. We're going to save it for next week, so just prolong your agony. What is it? Do we not know yet? It's a forfeit. We can't tell him what it is, because then he'll be ready for it. You know, I wouldn't refer to Joe as Joe, couldn't I? I wouldn't say Swinson, would I? I? Joe's here, though. Yeah, that would be be a bit weird, wouldn't it? Yes. (laughs) Right, it's been a rocky week for the special relationship, to say the least, after a leak of diplomatic cables written by the British ambassador to the US, Sir Kim Darroch. He described Donald Trump's administration as inept and dysfunctional, but the reaction from Trump's attacks on Darroch and Theresa May to Boris Johnson's refusal to back Darroch have caused shockwaves, including the ambassador's resignation. Let's hear Boris Johnson refusing to defend the ambassador in a heated ITV Tory leadership debate earlier this week. They say. Will he still uh, whoever, be in his job come whoever, January? Whoever leaked that deserves to be eviscerated. Boris, just uh, answer the question for on, once. On, Go on. on. Go on. Tell on us whether, if you'll keep whether, the ambassador in Washington. Come on. Kim I know is, I'm not going, I'm not going to, no one here mind? is going to tell anyone. Going to, just, just. Paul, is this all Boris Johnson's fault? It's not all his fault. I mean, I talked to several people involved uh, yesterday at great length, including close friends of Kim Darrick. And he was clear that, obviously, the, one of the main reasons was if the President of the United States declares you persona non grata and you're the Britain's ambassador, then you really, your, your job is pretty untenable. So that's the driving reason. The driving reason is Trump and Trump's overreaction, thin-skinned sort of confirmation of what he said in, in his memo in the first place, that this, this guy, you know, um, is thin-skinned. Uh, Trump proves it, but the fact is that Trump is Trump, he's the president, and uh, he couldn't literally do his job. The other key factor, obviously, is the very fact that this was leaked in the first place, 
And on top of that, you've got then Boris Johnson, who was asked, as the almost certain next Prime Minister, well, what are you going to do? And uh, it was clear from Kim Darroch's conversation with Boris yesterday that he that was one of the factors that it would lay in his mind and helped him change, make his mind up yesterday morning. So there's lots of it's not all Boris's fault. Now Boris's defenders argue he was simply playing brutal rail politic. In other words, the ship had already sailed. The, Prime Minister, the, the Trump had already tweeted um, some early on some of his disapproval. The problem with that argument is Trump hadn't actually done the big, you know, come down on the night of the ITV debate. He'd done all the worst stuff after that. So if Boris had actually stood his ground and stood by, the, you know, one of our senior civil servants, it's possible he could have sent a message to America and Trump that actually, you know, there are some lines you don't cross. Exactly. Yeah. I mean... The, I mean, if he says, well, it's the real politique, what, do we just invite any country around the world, any, you know, uh, egomaniacal kind of type of leader to say they can choose who our ambassador is? I mean, that is a horrendous suggestion. So backing up Sir Kim Darf would have been essential for any Prime Ministerial candidate with statesmanship. And the fact that Boris has totally failed that test... I mean, it, it just beggars belief. And this guy is trying to suggest that he, he's fit to be Prime Minister and, you know, he's undermining his own diplomatic service and indeed the whole civil service alongside that. You know, is he going to be standing up to Trump? Or is he going to be in Trump's pocket? Is he going to just, you know, be bullied by President Trump? Uh, you know, we need somebody who will stand up for our country. And this is just, you know, totally capitulating to, you know, one of the most worrying and dangerous leaders in the world. And that's what's really interesting about it is, you know, Theresa May tried the cosy Trump strategy and it failed, didn't it? It really failed badly. It failed very quickly, and, didn't it? And one of the main reasons that the state visit even happened this year is because back in January 2017, she made this panicked, desperate attempt to get next to Trump by offering the trinket, the bauble of a state visit without necessarily the Queen's you know, approval. And that was all forced on her by a panicky chief of staff. Uh, it wasn't even May's own decision. So that didn't work. And, and the question is whether or not Boris, maybe because he thinks because he's a guy, maybe because he can be chummier, that he thinks that somehow he's going to influence Trump. I think, basically, um, that's not going to work. But what might be the case, it might reveal that actually there isn't much difference between Trump and Boris. And that actually yeah. could be quite toxic with middle ground voters. I mean, I think, that, I mean, talking about the sort of real politique, I mean, you know, what power we have in that relationship, I mean, it's significantly reduced if we leave the European Union. And if Boris thinks that he's somehow going to be able to get, uh, you know, an amazing trade deal, I mean, it's absolutely clear what Donald Trump's priority is. And he's, you know, he's not the kind of person that thinks you can get a win-win in a deal. You know, he's somebody that tries to make deals by, you know, winning and beating and squashing the other side. So, you know, in, in that negotiation, we don't hold the cards. As you say, we had this state visit, which should never have happened. It was an honour that President Trump didn't deserve. And it, I mean, it is, I mean, it is astonishing that it is just a few weeks ago that all of that was laid on for Donald Trump and the attack that he has unleashed on Theresa May. I mean, I think she made the wrong decision in giving him a straight state visit, but you almost feel sorry for her when he just turns around and, and humiliates her like that. So, you know, I, I, I just think this is, it's just, it's hugely depressing and it, sends a, a signal about you know, what we might have to come with uh, a Prime Minister Johnson, which, yeah, awful. Joe, you're running for Lib Dem leader. Lib Dems are 
top of some polls and you've said, <laughs> you, you know, you want to be Prime Minister, yeah. aim high. If you were Prime Minister, you'd obviously keep us in the EU. Would you then look to kind of reset the special relationship and maybe make it slightly less special? Merkel and Macron are kind of moving away from, pivoting away from the US, especially Merkel somewhat. I mean, it will still be an important relationship. And, you know, we have no uh, issue with the American people. And there are plenty of people within the American uh, administrations and state governments and, you know, Congress and the Senate where, you know, we can and should have those strong and good relationships. Clearly, this particular Trump administration, though, is sort of contrary to our values and they are doing things which are contrary to our interests, whether that's on security and the way they're dealing with Iran or whether that's on climate emergency and pulling out of the Paris Accords. So I think we need to have that relationship, but recognise that at the moment that is going to have difficulty with, with Trump in that position, but to keep those strong links for what will hopefully be a new presidency at whatever point that happens, and clearly I hope that Trump won't win a second term. Um, But obviously we do have, you know, other important geopolitical relationships, but the most important one of those is our relationship with our fellow European Union states, because that's where our power and influence around the world, you know, increasingly is, when we are working together on behalf of 500 million consumers that's where we have the power to stand up to the tech giants like Facebook with you know, regulation on GDPR, privacy, making sure people are in the driving seat when it comes to how their data is used. Uh, and, and so, I mean, that's the, the obvious strategic you know, direction for, for our international relations. Um, let's indulge in some wild speculation without breaking the law. We never do that. Who, 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 who do you think leads it, Paul? Well, the Standard had a really interesting report yesterday suggesting it was a current serving official. Current. That is very interesting. And I thought, well, all the assumptions being this has been a political league, a special advisor's fingerprints or a minister, former minister, and someone who's no longer there. Um, if it's someone who's still there, they're in trouble because they will be found out if you're still there. Um, because there was lots of, you know, you will desperately try and cover your tracks. And you believe me, the spooks are going to be on this already, uh, and the, the cops may well be called in at some point. So if it is a, a serving official, I think they're in trouble. I'm not sure it is, though. It does, mm. it does to me, feel like a, someone who used to be in government, a, a special advisor, thinking they were being clever, storing all these cash of emails, and then just thinking they'd deploy it at some point. Um, if there's any link to Johnson, it's very, very bad for him. Very bad. I mean, what I'm struggling to work out the motivation behind this leak. Is it to essentially make the position vacant? Well, I think, yeah, I think, don't forget that Derek had already said he was leaving, right? So he's leaving in January. And this may well just have been an attempt to embarrass him rather than fire him. I think it was more about, as Johnson said, he doesn't like Derek's what he calls a sort of namby-pamby, Europhile, typical in-house FCO view of the world, which is pro-Europe. Um, and it was more probably about that. And then it tips over into something else. When you've got presidents as thin-skinned as we've got, then something actually serious happens. Um, and it's probably more accident rather than conspiracy. But it's also a carelessness, right? Yeah. I mean, it, we saw it with the NSC leak as well. So it's almost when you've had a total breakdown of uh, cabinet confidentiality, cabinet collective responsibility, that it, these things just start to feel 
impossible to people. They, they forget how, how important, and, and in a sense, how much is riding on it. You know, what, what this does to the ability of you know, our government to engage around the world because our ambassadors and diplomats will now be thinking very differently about what they send back. And, and I mean, that's going to be lasting damage. But I don't think, I mean, as a, as a journalist, I'm not against leaks. Don't get me wrong. We love, <laughs> we love leaks. But, and, and so actually, don't forget, WikiLeaks had lots and lots of cables of, you know, dip, dip, dip tells, as they're yeah. called, which showed what the Americans felt about various countries in the world. And it was all fairly reasonable, actually. Yeah, and a lot of this is reasonable yeah. stuff. So it's yeah. not, I mean, the reason the WikiLeaks stuff didn't catch fire is because it was kind of normal. Yeah, yeah, of course civil servants are going to be saying this stuff. So it wasn't what he said, and it wasn't necessarily even the leak. It's the fact that you've got a president who's so thin-skinned that he can't even take even the smallest bit of criticism. And Joe, just a quick one. Do you think mm. Theresa May should appoint Derek's successor now before leaving office? You've got two yeah. weeks left. I, I, th- I think that would be a, a smart move uh, because, I mean, you just dread to think who it will be if it's left up to Boris Johnson. I mean, you know, we, you know, if you can't even be trusted to, to stand up for the civil service, you know, what, what kind of person is he really going to put in that important role? Commons People is very excited to offer you the chance to enjoy six issues of the week for free at theweek.co.uk forward slash offer with offer code HuffPost. The week is like a news filter, pulling together articles and opinion from over 200 different sources. The week brings multiple viewpoints from across the spectrum all together to give you the full picture. And their concise summary of the last week isn't just politics and current affairs, but also covers sport, food, the arts and more. It's everything you need to know in one quick read, getting you outside the echo chamber and to the heart of the matter. Join thousands of people who trust The Week as their essential curated news source. Try it for yourself with your first six issues completely free. Go to theweek.co.uk forward slash offer and enter the code HuffPost for six free issues. Right, now it seems like every week we have a section on this podcast that I provisionally title Labour Woes. And yes, (laughs) this is another, another one of those weeks. Um, Jeremy Corbyn's commitment to campaign for a second Brexit referendum while the Tories are in power has been overshadowed by a shocking BBC Panorama documentary on claims that the leader's office has been interfering in anti-Semitism cases. Let's hear one of the former Labour officials who breached a non-disclosure agreement to speak to Panorama, the former head of disputes, Sam Matthews. There were um, elements among the, the, certainly in the leader's office, that regarded us and our team as Blairites who are working to undermine the leader of the Labour Party. And now suddenly our boss is someone who has openly accused members of my team of being politically motivated, of not investigating complaints against Blairites but investigating complaints against supporters of Jeremy. And this all created an environment and a culture that meant that the mental health of me and my team went through the floor. Paul, how bad is this? It's very bad if you watched it last night, just as somebody who didn't... If you remember the public who didn't know anything about the story, what you saw, and what I thought was the most powerful thing last night, was not necessarily the detail about the emails of who sent what and to who. You saw a parade of young people, enthusiastic, idealistic people Mm -hmm. who worked for a party, who just because they happened to be Jewish, um, were detailing 
again and again the, the sort of Jewish anti-Jewish abuse that they'd suffered online and more importantly in person in political meetings people who were supposed to be their fellow party members basically constantly assuming the worst of them constantly assuming they were part of some great conspiracy and I thought one of the most powerful things about it was the testament at the end where a chap said he'd given Jeremy Corbyn the benefit of the doubt for a long time over this and he was obviously a Corbyn you know sympathizer and said now he, he thought that actually had gone on too long and he compared it saying look if this had happened to any other race this was, this was anti-black racism it would have been stamped out pretty swiftly there would have been no excuse making none of the same sort of um, sort of context around it that's always given as excuses for this it would have been dealt with seriously and that's the most powerful point of all I think Joe yeah. do, you, do you think Jeremy Corbyn has to go for this well I, I mean there's many reasons why Jeremy Corbyn should go and you know but the Labour Party has been you know has been taken over there's many sensible moderate Labour people who you know we heard in this documentary and uh, you know have been reassessing uh, their, their situation because they feel their party has morphed into something that they don't recognise anymore and is not, you know, for many of those people who happen to be Jewish, does not feel like a safe place for them to be. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I know that so many Labour members feel incredibly sad about that and, you know, that benefit of the doubt thing, you know, have been giving chances, have been hoping that it would turn round and bit by bit more and more are coming to the conclusion that it's lost and and you know and there's 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 no there's no hope of it of it reversing and, and that's one of the reasons that many of them have have joined the Lib Dems um and you know, I, I kind of don't in a sense I don't take glee in that anybody no. who shares our liberal values is is welcome but it, it's a pretty horrendous Situation where where that's that's one of the driving forces. But the thing I find most, um, perhaps even the most distressing about this, is when faced with such a documentary, such powerful testimony from so many different individuals who clearly care about the labour movement, that the response from the Labour Party is to go to war with the BBC instead of going to war with anti-Semitism in their own ranks. You know, the, the way in which they are responding to this, you know, is astonishing. That they're just trying to discredit and that they were doing it even before the programme aired uh, and, and effectively to try and call out fake news. And you just, like, don't, you know, don't try and tell me that these people who are telling us their own experiences, you know, that they're not valid and that they are wrong and that somehow, you know, you, Jeremy Corbyn, know better, you know, what, what is anti-Semitic and, and what has happened to that person. Uh, and, and I just think it's really disgusting the way in which they have done that rather than saying, we have got a problem and we need to deal with it and we're going to deal with it. And it's just words. That's all you get, the words, but the actions do not back it up. It's quite like Donald Trump, the way they've tried yeah. to discredit the, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like the biggest crowds at the inauguration. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, it's just sort of saying what they, you know, what, they, what they wish their followers to believe. And, you know, if we just put out a d- different narrative, then we'll just say it's all media bias. And it's, and it's ridiculous. And, you know, you know, we need a better standard of debate in this country. We need to be able to have investigative journalism that can look into uh, issues and bring things to uh, the, the public's attention and then have a sensible and reasoned response to it. 
instead of anything that a party doesn't like, they can just say, well, you know, that, that outlet's obviously biased, so we, we won't even engage with it. And it stems from the, the fundamental issue that comes up again and again in Corbynism, which is an innate defensiveness. That's where a lot of it stems from. It's a sort of, they've spent years being, what in their eyes, pilloried, ridiculed by the mainstream media, by the m- most political parties. They think they've got this sense of an ideology that's virtuous. And to impugn that, for them, is, is, is really, really difficult to take. So the innate defensiveness of it always comes out. And that defensiveness then tips over into something else completely. It curdles into something that is like anti-Semitism. And... That you often see this tension all the time. I mean, everyone, you know, there's a bunker mentality in lots of different bits of parties whenever they're under fire, of yeah, course, yeah. and they all attack journalists. But this is different. I, I think it is something innate within the Corbyn movement, which is they've felt for so long that under attack that anything else that's even a chink of an attack, they go on the counter-attack straight away. And, and there isn't a sense of standing back and saying, actually, what is the real situation here? Um, and which would have done them a lot of good a lot earlier. I mean, it's kind of a little bit like a cult where, you know, Jeremy Corbyn can do no wrong in their eyes, rather than being able to say, well, <clears throat> I really like what he says on X and Y, but on this he's wrong, I didn't like how he did that. In, in that sort of, you know, proper, uh, objective taking a view and being able to recognise that somebody can be, you know, simultaneously good at some things and make some bad calls and judgments in other areas. And, uh, you know, uh, this is obviously, we're talking about more seriousness than just bad judgment. But, but it, you know, it should not be impossible for somebody to support Corbyn and be very angry about what has happened and demand that it must change. And yet somehow his support base, or many of them, because you're right, some of the people in that programme have actually you know, come out and, and made that change and taken a stand. Uh, but that many of them just, it, it's impossible for them to do that. And um, that, you know, he is the leader and he must be defended regardless of, of whether he deserves it. And it's also a rules-based approach to politics. We've talked about this before. <coughs> but the, the reason a lot of these people yeah. get upset is because they think being a member of the Labour Party is almost like a human right, like a legal right. And if you have that legal right, almost like a passport being withdrawn from you, you feel like you've got to go down the route, a legal route to challenge that. So if you said something vaguely anti-Semitic, you don't actually then say, OK, yeah, political parties have their own rules and values and they can get rid of me, that's fine. You treat it like an attack on your very being and on your legal rights. And you go down this whole idea of the rule book and how far does the rule book go and, and what are my rights, rather than looking at the bigger picture. It's almost treating it like a kind of public sphere rather than a private sphere, isn't it? You know, not like a private club, it's like a public space almost. Exactly, yeah. I mean, you know, I've talked to Ambassador Ed Miliband about this, you know, he takes the view that actually, yeah, the leader sets the moral values and compass of a party, and it's up to, I mean, Jo will know this, if indeed she does become leader, you you carry a lot of weight as leader, you've got Mm. a lot of responsibility to set the direction, and that means, yeah, the leader should say, well, actually, these aren't our values, and I'm going to act pretty quickly to try and change the rules to sort it out. Yeah, I I mean, I think it's interesting what you say there about the kind of rules and process, because I think often with these types of things, people do get just, you know, obsessed with a kind of process view of it. And when you're talking about these issues, yet you absolutely need a process, but it's not enough. It's a cultural thing. It's, you know, how do you set the culture within an organisation and what messages are you sending? And then are your processes supporting that or making that more difficult and do you need to change them? But it's almost like for many people, it's like the process is the be all and end all rather than taking that more holistic view. And, and your party actually, Joe, has had 
troubles with disciplinary processes as well. Um, Lord Steele being readmitted before, I think, the investigation into what he knew or didn't know about Cyril Smith was complete, and the whole Lord Renard saga. What well, I mean, I think in, in the case of Lord Steele, there was a proper investigation done, and, and he gave the clarifications that, that were necessary, and, and he was readmitted, which is uh, fair enough. But in terms of Lord Renard, I, t- I mean, I totally agree. I, 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 you know, I, I'm hugely frustrated about that and again it comes back to this obsession about process and uh, and whether or not a criminal standard of proof was reached about sexual harassment I mean for the behavior of somebody who was a you know an employee a chief executive of the party I mean there's no doubt in my mind that that behavior didn't didn't meet that um, standard and and we need to be very mindful of what message we send out to to people who want to come to our party events and that's why you know I've I, yeah I don't have power as deputy leader and you know the, the leader doesn't have that power but what you can do is be very very clear and I and I've said it and I've been criticized for saying it that as far as I'm concerned he's not welcome because the the outcome where he remains and importantly not showing any contrition not actually having any remorse for what happened uh, and learning from it uh, but that he remains and and many of the women who uh, who, who were involved have, have not felt able to stay. I mean, that's, that's dreadful. And I think there is an interesting path to, you know, how do people respond to this? Because I think the case of Naz Shah is, is interesting. Mm. You know, so she got, she got it wrong. And she went and she put it right. And she mm. learned. And, you know, I think, I think that's, that's what you kind of need. So this is a, it's not a kind of gotcha thing. It's a, how do we make this better? And when things aren't right or mistakes and problems happen... How do we how do we put it right? And that's that's what the focus should be on. And if you became leader, <coughs> what would you do with Lord Renard? I I, I mean, in terms could of you, you know, possibly you, you like you say you've been really clear about what you think of him. Yep. Is the power of sort of humiliation doesn't seem to have worked. No, I, I mean, I just, all I will keep doing is being clear and making sure there is no formal role that uh, you know there is there is there is no sort of additional responsibility. That he will have under my leadership, um, but in terms of the the rules, in terms of the the party decides, in terms of membership, you know, the, the leader doesn't get the chance to pick and choose. And you know, we had a process that was flawed, a process which is is now so much better. I'm never going to say it's perfect because we always need to learn. But I'm I'm very confident that if if what had happened then was put through today's process, the result would have been different. Right. Joe, just a quick quick one on Labour. Have you had any Labour MPs contact you this week, you know, with the kind of another sort of semi-Brexit fudge and then the anti-Semitism claims about potential defection? Uh, I mean, I've certainly been speaking with, with Labour MPs this week on the Brexit uh, issue and their uh, distress, frustration about uh, about how that, you know, how that debate is going within their own party. So... Um, you know, I, I, I'm sure there will be some of them who who do wonder about you know what what the future holds for the Labour Party, and of course, if they share our liberal values, then they're very welcome to join the Liberal Democrats. And you know, Chuka Amuna has had a, a, a wonderful, warm welcome in the Lib Dems. Now we've touched on it already, but with all this going on, it's easy to forget, although not on this podcast so far, that there is another leadership contest going on uh, for the Liberal Democrats. (laughs) Not easy to forget. (laughs) With the party topping some opinion polls as British politics fractures over Brexit, the result might be far more significant than many think. Let's just hear from your rival, Ed Davey, 
on how he plans to win over Leave voters. People again. Okay. I, I obviously disagree with him with respect to Britain's membership of the European Union. And I'd say this to Alf. Actually, most of the laws that affect Alf's life and that of his dog, most of those laws are passed in Westminster. I've been a, uh, an MP for just over 20 years and all the laws that affect my constituents are almost all made in Westminster, where they're not. Uh, Joe, Ed Davey, there's a, there's a text going around in which Ed Davey says he has way more substance and depth on almost every policy issue than you. Uh, would you like to respond to that? I don't think he says that. Uh, I, I, certainly not something I've heard him say at, uh, at the hustings. Uh, you know, it's been a very positive contest. It's a contest between friends. We, we actually like each other, uh, unlike in the Conservative uh, race uh, for their leader. How boring. Yeah, I know. I, well, and it's interesting, actually, because one of the questions we keep getting is, you know, well, you just keep agreeing. And it's like, well, you know, you're asking us about Brexit. So, yeah, funnily enough, you're going to get the same answer from two Liberal Democrats. Uh, and I think part of that is because our party is really united and really positive and really focused on you know, where we want to go. And we generally have a similar idea of where we want to go. So it's more about rather than a sort of battle for the soul of the Lib Dems and, and what direction they're going in. It's more about who's who's better placed to do that. And, you know, Ed, Ed makes his case about that. And, you know, I, I, I talk about how I'm better placed to reach out to new voters, which is the challenge that we have to break through that 20 percent, because in a world where we're looking at a Boris Johnson prime minister prime ministership and a, a Jeremy Corbyn Labour Labour leadership, you know, millions of people are already crying out for a positive alternative. And if Johnson becomes prime minister, as we expect, will happen. Even more so, that will that will increase. And so that is the space that we need to fill, and that is the opportunity. And it's those people who have not looked at the Lib Dems before uh, have uh, have have now become disillusioned with their preferred party whether it was Labour or the Conservatives who who are our, our opportunity. Well it's interesting I've been speaking to one of the MPs who fits that description from the Labour side who and there's a there's quite a lot of them now who kind of went to change and split and it's independence and various others and people may want to leave the Tories and Labour as you say with the issues with the leadership. But what this MP was saying to me was if the Liberal Democrats want to break through 20, even 25, and become the potential party of government, they the Liberal Democrats might need to change what they are to bring in more people on board, maybe a name change, maybe a kind of slightly sort of widening of the party's outlook. Is that something you're willing to consider? Well, I think it's, I mean, it's really interesting, really interesting question. I mean, I, I think... There's lots of people with small L liberal values in the Labour Party and indeed in the Conservative Party and, and you know, across uh, many parts of politics. Uh, and, you know, perhaps by a sort of quirk of fate, they joined Labour. You know, it might have been in the 1990s with the kind of rise of Blair or whatever. Or maybe they joined, maybe they joined the, the Conservatives uh, when David Cameron became leader. And, uh, and so I actually don't think that... Uh, you know what our set of values are are particularly exclusive, I and mean, we've got a strong social democrat tradition within the Lib Dems. Uh, you know, we we you know we are a party that merged from the Social Democrats and the Liberal Party. So, so I I, I, I would encourage people to look at our our policies and uh, and and you know how we do things and our our culture. And it's really interesting speaking to Chuka about this because. 
you know, he says it's it's really by being in the Lib Dems that he realises how unhappy he was. And, I mean, he talks about how in the Labour Party it's like gang warfare. Um, you know, there's another pe- person who joined us who was quite senior in the Labour Party who I was speaking to about the leadership election, and they were they were really worried about backing one candidate because, you know, it seemed like if that happened that... <laughs> You know, if the other person won, that you know that that would be forever. That would be a problem because there would be different factions. And I'm kind of like, you know, I kind of can't remember all the people who backed Tim or Norman in 2015 because we had the leadership election and then we all came together again. So, so I think that um, I think we actually do have a lot to to offer. Uh, but I understand that you know, it's a big it's a big decision if someone's going to think about leaving their party. It's not something people do lightly. Uh, there's a big emotional attachment. You know, it's, it's not just a kind of you know, cost-benefit analysis of what, what the policies are and you know, what's the electoral arithmetic. It's also, it's also an emotional, emotional decision, an emotional attachment. And people have friends and, uh, and memories and they have invested a lot in their party. So, um, so, you know, so I think it's about you know, helping people who, who want to make that jump or are considering making that, um, making that leap to, to understand that there'll be a lot of support for them in doing so. And I think the experience of people like Chuka, you know, show that that's the case. I mean, it, the response from Liberal Democrat members has been really, really interesting. It has been a very, very welcoming response. And when I made that point at a hustings, where I said I was really proud of the party and how we'd responded... I mean, it got a spontaneous round of applause in the middle of the answer that I was giving. So, so that, that it does resonate with with Lib Dems. We're very open to, uh, to more people. I mean, do, do you think even? I mean, obviously, you don't want to jump part of your tradition, um, while at the same time trying to appeal to a new electorate. But maybe without changing the name of the party, you could change its branding and just call yourselves the Democrats, for example. You wouldn't need to change any single thing in the constitution, but you could. That could be your branding, and that would be you know, a, a brand new force, the change makers, and then suddenly you've got this idea that suddenly we, we could be a, we could actually win this thing. And do you think that's a rubber? Well, I mean, I, I don't know if you're going to go into kind of brand image consulting, Paul, but <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure that's, I'm not sure that's the answer, but I, I do, I do think that, um, uh, you know, how we, how we reach out and how we are open is, is important and the ways in which we can demonstrate that and I think that's part of how we do our politics it's part of how we work with other with other people in different parties on the people's vote campaign but it's also about how we extend that into other policy areas and issues too incidentally I think that uh, organizations like more united are really important for breaking down some of the old barriers in politics about how you work with others and uh, you know we you know whether it's the whatsapp groups or whatever else you start to get a different insight and you do all of that sort of you know trust building working with people across the political spectrum who you you sort of you didn't know so well you might have been on a select committee with someone and got to know them that way but i think finding more ways in which people can develop that trust because I think there's, there's nothing that says politics has to continue in the same tribal way that it always has. You know, we're, you know, everything is changing in our society. Well, politics should be changing too and find different ways of doing it. It's interesting. You're not ruling out a kind of rebrand, as, as Paul says, or, you know, it doesn't seem like you're totally wedded to... Well, you really want to appeal to new voters, you said. I mean, I'd say I'm pretty sceptical about about whether that's the answer. You know, there's lots of people that came along and said, you know, what we need is a, a new party and a new force. And, yeah. you know, yeah, I mean, to be fair to, to change UK, <laughs> you know, they, they went off and they tried that. And, you know, 
most of them have concluded that actually that wasn't what people wanted. And, uh, you know, what people seem to have wanted was a stronger Liberal Democrats, which which, which is, is, is great. And uh, I suppose I want, I think we need to build a Liberal movement. And I see that as having a very strong Liberal Democrats at its heart. And just recognise that there'll be some people who, for whatever reason, have been in another party and have a loyalty elsewhere, that it might take them longer or they might not ever feel quite able to join the Liberal Democrats, but can still be sort of part of a wider movement pushing to stop Brexit, to tackle the climate emergency and and, and cooperating and working jointly together. I mean, similarly to many people in, in the Greens. I mean, there's, there's a lot of issues that we, we share views on you know, Brexit and the climate emergency. But, you know, the, the, the Green tradition, it, you know, it is different. And there's, you know, there's people who are in the Greens... authoritarian. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So who wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable in the Liberal Party. And, and that's OK, but it doesn't mean that we can't get better at, at working together and, and cooperating, you know, particularly to try to achieve the electoral reform that would help to transform our politics and make it much healthier across the Do board. Do you think, just... I know, I know I've just got more questions but do you think actually one of the big problems you've got is that post Brexit you lose your big draw for those Labour moderate voters who came to you in droves in the Euro elections in other words and that maybe say Boris Johnson does have a no deal Brexit or some kind of Brexit do you think then the party the Lib Dems really need to think about revoke as a, an official policy in other words you, you you believe deeply in the EU and that you'll have to put your money where your mouth is and say, right, we've left now, we've got a brand new challenge, which is getting back in. Do you think that's that's going to work? Well, I think the first thing to say is if, if we leave, that's the beginning of years and years and years of Brexit negotiations. So anybody who's a bit sick of Brexit already, actually, the, the quickest way to make it stop is to back a people's vote and vote to remain. And, and if we were in that period of those extensive negotiations, there would be lots of immediate battles to be fought about what that relationship would look like and how close we would be on regulatory alignment, on trade rules, on you know beefing up our diplomatic service in all of the European capitals and making sure that we worked hand in glove on, on, on international issues. So uh, all of those things, by the way, would also give you flexibility for being able to rejoin the European Union. And, of course, as Lib Dems, we're not going to suddenly stop thinking that we're best placed as a country to be in the European Union. I mean, this is one of the bizarre things about the way David Cameron approached this whole situation. You know, he went and did that renegotiation, but wouldn't say whether he would recommend staying in the EU as if his view on that was going to be influenced by the specifics of a deal on what benefits payments would be made for Polish plumbers. Rather than saying, you know, it is in our strategic interest in a world where you've got, you know, uh, an American superpower in the West, now led by Donald Trump, although at the time it was rather more benign than Barack Obama. You've got the rise of China, you've got Putin uh, in Russia. And in that uncertain world, you know, how does Britain have significant influence? How do we protect our prosperity and our security? Clearly the answer is going to be with our nearest neighbours who share our values in the European Union. And, you know, so, so I think the fact that he sort of was countenancing it all being about some little technocratic details entirely framed it in, in the wrong way. Well, we can, we can go on forever about the roots of this. Um, <laughs> and I do have more questions, Paul, but they're in quiz form. Oh, I'm just going to turn This is what every politician longs for. 
Paul's very competitive, Joe. I'm not at all. Alright, so, yeah. oh, right, so, so it's like, it's, it's, who gets it first? Well, I'm, I'm yeah. the quiz master, and yeah. there's okay. only two so guests. Put finger on the buzzer type. So, put finger on the buzzer, right? Yeah, just shout okay. out the answer okay. first, and you will get a point. What's the theme this week, the then? The theme this week is the special relationship. Oh, right. Rather fitting that we've been discussing it. That is the UK-US relationship, yeah. for clarity. <laughs> so, first question. Uh, which president betrayed strains in the special relationship by calling Germany America's closest international partner? Oh, was that Obama? Obama? Oh, I think oh, Joe was just she beat me. She fast beat enough. Me. Yeah, he also felt David Cameron had been distracted by domestic priorities as Libya descended into crisis after the mm. 2011 bombing campaign. So, point to Joe. Yeah, yeah. one point to Joe. This is going to be good. This is going to be competitive. I think. Question number two. Which, which British PM, who was crucial in strengthening the special relationship, had a mother with US citizenship? Churchill. Yes. Uh-huh. One all. Right, yeah, I didn't know that. Here's the decider. Yeah, Paul might have an advantage on this one, an age advantage. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Paul. <laughs> Ouch! Uh, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher were famously close, Mm. Uh but when the US invaded a certain nation without consulting London, the relationship was put under strain. Grenada. Was it Grenada? 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 You don't know that that was my question, Paul, but it is the right answer. (laughs) (laughs) I think because you haven't let me ask the question, so Joe had no chance to to draw. Oh, or maybe, or maybe Joe just wins because you get minus <gasps> one for uh, cutting you know, me off. I, I do, I do think that you're a rob there, Paul. I think. But you know what? On Universal Challenge, if you if you intervene, you get it wrong, you lose five. But if you intervene, and get it right. This isn't University Challenge, Paul. It's the Commons People yeah, podcast. It's, 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 it's not democracy. Well, I think I think you did quite well there. Yeah. Well, well, well done both. Um, I do have the advantage of remembering it on the telly. Okay. University Challenge, like Commons People, as a host from Leeds. similarities end there very good Uh, right that's all we've got time for thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe on all the usual channels we're just going to leave you with this bizarre moment as Jeremy Corbyn left his house this morning accompanied by an unknown woman shouting in Spanish what's going on they don't have any idea Laura Laura estás lista no qué pasa qué pasa estos desgraciados que qué malos son que no cesan de acosar qué gente tan desagradable pero qué piensas qué piensas no saben lo que hacen ellos que no saben no tienen ni idea Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. 